Well, we've come now to the end of Romans here, Romans 15 and 16. And just to recap what I've been saying all through, that in chapters 1 to 8 we have the gospel explained, and we are presented there as serious sinners who stand in the dock with our own sin in the witness box, witnessing against us, and we are, of course, worthy of condemnation. But if we are in Christ by being baptized into him, believing in him, and the life of the Spirit in him, uh, as per Romans 8, then we are counted as him, and we are justified or declared right. And it's not that we we just scrape into the kingdom, we are declared as him. And that means that we are counted uh, as if all his righteousness is ours. And this is, of course, by absolute grace, and it's by faith in that. There's nothing you can do. It's just something that you have to believe in and accept. And therefore, we should be able to say at this moment in time that if the Lord comes right now, I, by God's grace, will definitely be in his kingdom. And then in chapters 9 to 11, you've got Israel presented as the, uh, the parade example of that grace. And then from chapter 12, 12 verse 1 begins, I beseech you, therefore... And the precedent for therefore is all the wonderful things of the gospel that he's been talking about previously. Uh, And then from chapter 12 to 16 we have this practical section of Romans where the response is laid out for us. That if this is what has been done for us, then, and we, we believe it, and it's not that if we do what's in Romans 12 to 16 we will kind of get considered for salvation we have been declared right and we have that abounding joy and hope because of that right now and our response to that to that grace wherein we stand as he has said is living in the kind of way that he outlines in 12 to 16 and here then we've got allusion after allusion back to what he said in the previous uh, sort of more doctrinal chapters. For example, here in chapter 15, verse 13, he says that we should abound in hope. And uh, that's the same word used in, in 5, verse 15, that the grace of God abounds to us. There is uh, an abounding, a super abundant quality to that grace, which I think incidentally is is reflected in things like how many baskets of food were left over after the feeding miracles. There was a huge amount left over, uh, as if to indicate this super abundant provision of bread in the wilderness for, for us. So then God's grace has abounded to us, and we also should abound in hope. And we are to, verse 13 sort of implies, we are to allow the process to happen, that God is, is working in us. In verse 28, Paul talks about uh, sealing unto the Gentiles the, the fruit of your generosity, when I have sealed to them this fruit. Um, they have uh, given, given money to those that were poor, and he talks about that as a fruit that is going to be sealed to them. But the idea of bringing forth fruit... This is going back to chapter 6, verse 22, where we're told that after baptism, when we change masters and we change status, we are now in the sphere of thinking that is in Christ, we are to bring forth fruit to God. And here he he seems to be saying that you can actually help each other to do that. For example, by Paul organizing the collection 
for the uh, the poor believers in in uh, Jerusalem, which he talks about in verse 26. This was bringing forth fruit for the the Macedonians, for the donors. And sometimes, in the context of uh, our life in in church, in the ecclesia, in, in running around trying to organise things and do this and do that, it's a bit like in family life. It, it can become very wearing because it appears that we're just sort of. Uh, sort of low-level administrators running around doing this, doing that, trying to do this, that and the other. Uh, and it all can become a sort of a, a monotone. It, it can become very, uh, very boring and very repetitious and very same old scenish uh, and certainly very, very lacking in appreciation. But Paul did that uh, and he, he set up this collection and he got beat up for it. You remember his letters to the Corinthians, they pulled out of, or threatened to pull out of giving the money they'd promised and there was all sorts of questions about his motives and why and how he was doing it, just as there always is. No good deed you know, goes unpunished. And yet the whole point of it was to seal unto those believers who donated this fruit and yet we're told that we individually are to bring forth fruit to God after our baptism in Romans 6.22 but the the connection is showing that we can actually help others to achieve that Uh, and that is I I think the the maturity which we should get to in in our growth that the ecclesia, that our interactions with each other in whatever form those interactions are it could be online or however it is in our particular situation that is all, if it's done the right way, that is all in order to bring forth fruit uh, practically for others. And that is, I think, the danger of um, just endless hanging out online. That if we're not very careful, if we're not very careful, there is actually nothing concrete that comes out of it. Tapping words on a screen is in one sense no more and no less than that. But something practical has got to issue what he's calling here fruit. Now, while we're talking about connections with uh, the earlier part of Romans, in verse 21 he talks about his desire to, uh, to preach the gospel and to expand who he's preaching to. And he wants to take it to those who have not heard to fulfill the prophecy that to whom he was not spoken of they shall see and they that have not heard shall understand. And so he says, therefore I want to go further in my spreading of the gospel geographically. And yet, in chapter 10 verses 14 to 18, he says that people will only hear the gospel if there is a preacher. But he quotes Psalm 19, which says, well, have they not all heard? And he quotes it, uh, as it were, in the past tense, as if, yes, surely, he says, they have all heard. And yet he talks here about the need to get out there and tell the message to those who have not heard. But he says in chapter 10 that, yeah, actually, they have all heard. Now, I understand that as him using what's been called the... uh, the prophetic perfect he's speaking about that which has not yet happened as if it has and yet he's actually going out now to do his practical part in fulfilling it and so in a sense God's statements that all the earth has heard that the sound of the gospel 
they depend upon us and upon our free will decisions for their fulfilment because it's easy to assume that Paul uh, kind of was, was forced like a, a puppet almost to, to do the preaching of the gospel that he did but in fact as this uh, section indicates he actually did so because he wanted to and because he was motivated by his understanding of these Old Testament prophecies I mean there in verse uh, verse 20 uh, verse 21 um, to whom he was not spoken of they shall see he's quoting here from Isaiah 53 the prophecy about the crucifixion of Jesus and so he's saying that because that's prophesied about Jesus that is what I must do and the uh, preface to that prophecy in Isaiah 53 is back in Isaiah 52 um, in, in verses 7 and, uh, and 10 how beautiful are the feet of him that brings good tidings all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God now the him who brings good tidings is clearly Jesus and yet he justifies his, his preaching in uh, uh, earlier on um, in, uh, in Romans 10 by quoting that about himself that he saw a prophecy of Jesus about Jesus as about himself now that's how he saw the lead up to the suffering servant prophecy that, that's talking about Jesus but it talks about me then that's also how he's reading chapter 53 of, of Isaiah so then to whom he was not spoken of they shall see he and those who have not heard about him that is the crucified Jesus are going to hear he takes that as a, a cue to him to take the message as far as he can to all people and he talks about his ambition to do this in geographical terms and he says there in verse 19 he says that starting in Jerusalem and going around about even unto or as far around as Illyricum he says that he has fully preached or fulfilled the gospel of Christ so he seems to have in mind here a circle that's what the language uh, certainly in the Greek implies that he has begun in Jerusalem and he's gone round in a circle uh, in an arc as it were the arc of a circle as far as Illyricum and now he's planning to go on to Rome now if you sort of imagine it um, starting at Jerusalem and then he's uh, drawing in his mind as it were a circle through Turkey and coming round to Rome where he has told the Romans that he wants to come there and then he's going on to speak about coming to Spain now <clears throat> it could be that his idea was that after Spain he would complete the circle going through North Africa coming back to Jerusalem and he, he feels this very strongly pushing him on he, he talks about verse 23 that he has no more place in, in these parts where he, he then was uh, and he wants to go on to, to them uh, in Rome and then into Spain then my suggestion is that actually the, the language of drawing a circle starting from Jerusalem means that he was thinking further than that of sort of coming back to Jerusalem via preaching in North Africa now you might think well that's fine for Paul he was geographically able to, to do that 
Although, you know, let's, um, let's not pause, let's not uh, assume that we are not called to be missionaries. Maybe you are. And when I think of how particularly our young people travel amazing distances on holidays and adventures of one sort and another, uh, I, I would have really thought, I would have really thought that there was no real excuse for between us the body of Christ not taking the gospel to the furthest parts of the earth. Yeah, instead of hooning around on, on the beaches of uh, Thailand or Indonesia or whatever it might be, I, I mean, take the gospel to those who have really not heard on some Indonesian island or some uh, remote part of Thailand or Brazil or whatever it might be, uh, rather than uh, just pleasure-seeking, uh, as it were. But okay, you might say, well, that's not for me. I am limited financially, health-wise, family-wise, whatever. That's fine. Paul pushed himself to his limits in this vision he had of taking the gospel to those who have not heard it because of the prophecy that says that those who have not heard about Jesus shall hear about him. Now, my point is, he didn't just shrug and say, yeah, well, uh, that's for somebody else to do that. That's not for me because you see, blah, blah, blah. And so the point is that you and I, in whatever situation we are in, particularly if we are online, we can take the gospel into the whole world. We really can. And the world, our world, it may be the apartment block in which we live. It can be the shops we go to. It can be the, the, the circle of people that, that we mix with in whatever context of homemaking or, or work or whatever it might be. We have our, con our con sort of contact circle. that We each have one. And we are to take that message to them. And so what I'm trying to say is that Paul's example of spiritual ambition here when he says uh, that, that he has striven to preach the gospel, um, back there in, uh, in verse 19, so have I, sorry, verse 20 of 15, so have I strived. The, the Greek really means to be ambitious. So I have been ambitious to preach the gospel. And he, he goes on uh, in verse, back in verse 19 he says that he has fully preached the gospel of Christ and when he dies and he's, we've got his kind of swan song in 2 Timothy 4.17 he says that the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known and it's the same phrase that he's uh, used here in verse 19 that I have fully preached the gospel and that he's striving, he's being ambitious to, uh, to complete it um, at the end of his life he can say that yes he really has done this because the Lord was with him and strengthened him in it and if that is your spirit of ambition in your life that you want to share the gospel with others and I am not talking about geographically necessarily but that you want to take the good news of him who has saved you to others if you who, has been, uh, who have been saved by grace, who has been declared right, who is standing there in the dock, now totally declared right and falling into the arms of both the judge and the counsel for the defense, who is Jesus, uh, rejoicing, abounding in hope because of the grace that has abounded to you, you naturally will want to share that with others.
not assume that it can be left to others to do that. And so, in as far as we seek to do that in our own context, then the Lord will stand with you as he stood with Paul and strengthen you to, to do that. Now, just going back uh, to the beginning of, of chapter 15, there are some really quite profound thoughts there, developed, I think, out of the idea that he keeps coming up with there in the, in the first part of Romans, that the gospel is that we are declared right because we are in Christ and that therefore all that is true of him becomes true of us and we therefore are to be him to this world and therefore all that he did and achieved in a sense is for us to now go out practically and do we cannot stand at the end of uh, you know Romans 1 to 11 sort of rejoicing that wow I am counted as Christ I am now declared right well the natural response to that has to be well okay so what did he do I want to uh, act out in, st- in practice what I am in status so he says that we that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now in the context the weak are weak brethren within the ecclesia. People who've got hang-ups about you need to keep the Sabbath, you mustn't eat this meat and you must do this, that and the other. Uh, people who maybe misunderstand God's word even on quite fundamental points, because there's no doubt that the Bible is quite clear, the New Testament is quite clear, that the law of Moses has been ended, and that all those Jewish feasts, uh, the Sabbaths and all that, that's all over and done now. And you could argue, as Paul really does, that to believe in those things and still try and keep them is really a sign that we don't really believe, as we should do. And so when Paul is saying here that we've got to bear with the infirmities of the weak and be sensitive to them you could read it in the bigger scale as him saying look when people have committed themselves to Jesus but they clearly don't get it on some quite major points and they are so ignorant that they actually make a fuss about those very points well bear with them because who bore your infirmities? This is Isaiah 53 language. Who bore our infirmities and our weaknesses? It was Jesus on the cross. That is Isaiah 53. And so as he did that for us, and he did that for us individually to a huge extent, then we are to do this for each other. And we are there for every one of us, verse 2, to please his neighbor for his good to his building up as Christ pleased not himself but as it is written the reproaches of them that reproached you fell upon me and that's quoted from Psalm 69 verse 9 which is a crucifixion psalm a a very clear prophecy of the crucifixion and Paul is applying that to us that if the Lord Jesus on the cross had all these reproaches that fell upon him, then we also are to um, endure likewise the weaknesses of others and carry to some extent to carry them Uh, because very often we're in situations where really someone has to be the Christian around here that is really how it is time and time again and in those moments of having to be patient with other people with their weaknesses and hang-ups we are in fact 
living out the cross. We're told to pick up the cross of Jesus and carry it. And of course the question is, well, how do I do that? You know, it's all very, uh, very well to sing about that and think, wow, yes, that's the, uh, that's the standard for me, and uh, yes, that is what must, I must do. But what does that mean in practice? Well, it means in practice things like being patient and carrying at times your, your weaker brethren. And then he uh, he goes on there um, to say that whatever was written aforetime was written for our learning. And the context of that is talking about these prophecies about Jesus on the cross. And he's saying that that is for us. It's not just, oh yeah, that's interesting, that uh, predicts very accurately the sufferings of Jesus. Uh, yeah, that is for our learning, because all that is true of him becomes true of us and becomes an imperative for us. And we've seen that, uh, again, exemplified in how he's saying that uh, because Jesus is, as it were, the light of the world, so must we be the light of the world. And in Acts 13.47, he justifies his own preaching to the world by saying that it is written that you must be a light to the Gentiles. And it's very clearly talking about Jesus personally, and yet he interprets it as an imperative to himself, as the justification for his, his whole preaching work. So then, as Jesus carried our iniquities and sins and weaknesses, so we are to bear with others, and that endless love that uh, was shown to us by him there has got to be continually our, our inspiration and we fulfill in that sense the gospel by preaching it and by, by living it by the word becoming flesh in us as it was in the Lord that's why in uh, verse 19 he talks about having fulfilled the gospel in the Greek and in the RV uh, by preaching it but the gospel is not just, in that sense, something to, believe, to be uh, believed uh, and sort of academically understood, but it is something to be fulfilled in human life. So then we come to chapter 16, which is a, a list of uh, names, really, greetings, etc., and we can too easily skim over that and, and fail to see, I think, the, the point of it all. Now, the list of believers' names here is clearly for a purpose, and I think it's to show how all types had come together in the Ecclesia there uh, in Rome. Now, he names a number of women and greets them, and that was apparently uncommon in contemporary Jewish, Jewish letters of the time. Some of the names here in chapter 16 are very common slave names, Phlegon, Hermes, Philologus, um, but then you come to Narcissus, um, who uh, apparently, then this is extra-biblical tradition, uh, was a famous and, and wealthy member of the court of Claudius. And he gives greetings from two members at Corinth, in verse 23. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, and he's writing from Corinth, uh, Erastus, the treasurer of the city, salutes you, and Cortus, a brother. So he sort of purposefully, I think, juxtaposes, puts together 
this uh, wealthy treasurer of the city and uh, some unknown courtus who was a brother as if to say they are of the same spiritual standing now <clears throat> the social mix amongst believers uh, was uh, would have been startling now he, he talks in verse uh, 23 about Gaius whom he calls the host of the whole church that means that the whole ecclesia could meet at his house he hosted them so then Gaius was wealthy and yet there are people mentioned here who have as I say common slave names near Rome at uh, Ostia they've managed to excavate uh, to really quite an amazing extent uh, the properties there and streets there from the first century uh, certainly from the, uh, the second century or the later part of the, the first century and one thing they noticed was that there was little differentiation of rich and poor according to which neighbourhoods they lived in that is there wasn't sort of a, the upper class suburb and then the working class uh, area they all seemed to, rich and poor seemed to live uh, very close together there were these what were effectively apartment blocks um, blocks of very squalid little apartments in which the poor lived and right next door to them there was the spacious homes of the wealthy now if Gaius was host of the whole church then he would have had a, a large spacious home and he was welcoming into that home his poor neighbours because we know that the gospel is preached to the poor and that generally it is the poorer who respond en masse and that is I think, clearly what happened in the, in the first century so it was a pretty amazing thing for him to open his home to those poor neighbours of his who had turned to Christianity and there would have been all the usual allegations that ah oh, yeah they only uh, got baptised because they wanted to uh, you know wanted to get something out of it and all this sort of stuff would have, would have gone on but when he says there that they are to greet each other with a holy kiss this opens up an absolutely wonderful uh, spectrum of, of imagination they are all, he emphasizes this in verse 16, to greet all the other members with a holy kiss. And you, you've got this, uh, 1 Corinthians 16.20, 2 Corinthians 13.12, 1 Peter 5.14. It was very clearly um, something which they sort of had as a, uh, as a tradition in the early church. Now, it would have been unthinkable for a slave to take such initiative to kiss their master or indeed any free person sociologically all this stood no chance of ever being done and yet you remember how Jesus said in his prayer of John 17 that the, the unity of his church would be enough to convert the world and I think this chapter of Romans 16 is really indicating in practice how this started to be worked out um, and that's why as I say there is this juxtaposition this putting of uh, the rich and the, the poor together you've got it uh, again I think there in verse 8 where he talks about Tertius um, 
Sorry, I got the wrong uh, wrong verse there. Um, anyway, he talks about Tertius, who is the uh, the scribe. That is somebody who would be um, reasonably well well educated. Um, maybe verse 22 I, I had in mind. Um, and yet he also talks about uh, Ampliatus, which is uh, apparently a, a well-known uh, slave name. So then these two are, are put together. Yeah, that's in verse uh, verse eight. Um, so then, all the way through, well, sorry, I obviously had the uh, my verses wrong there. But um, my simple point is that people from totally uh, different social backgrounds and status, male, female, uh, Gentile, Jew, according to their names, uh, different kinds of employment, etc., are all being put together here. And this is really an essay in the unity between all sorts of persons in the early church. And I think it's one reason why Christianity grew in the almost humanly inexplicable way that it did. Now, it may seem at times that unity in the church, that unity amongst believers, is a sort of sociological and psychological impossibility. That there's too many clashes of personality. That there are just it just seems impossible, you know. Let you know, let's say the white people have their church and the black people have their church in South Africa or, or the America of the uh, the 1920s or whatever it might have been. Let the intellectuals have their church and let the working class have their church. That's the way it works out, you know, in practice. But no, the true church is not to be like that. Is not to be like that. And it is that extreme and radical unity which Jesus had in mind in John 17 that was going to be so startling to the world that it could convert people. And that is what is possible. That is what the gospel elicits. That is what the whole theory, if you like, of uh, Romans 1 to 8 comes out at in practice that if we really are walking away from our judgment seat knowing that wow I have been declared right you will simply not be be so arrogant and not so so self-possessed as to hold other believers at arm's length you will fall into their arms whether you are a slave or whether you are a master a slave owner the owner of a large house you will be motivated to drop all that and to see that that is nothing because the old man is dead in baptism, Romans 6 and now we are living in Christ and for him and as him in this world 